Our next retreat is finally here. It's called Adventures in Energetics, and it's happening November 8th to the 14th, 2024 in Boquete, Panama. This seven-day, six-night retreat in the beautiful cloud forest of Panama is going to be a unique experience. This program is a not-for-beginners retreat. And what I mean by that is you will actually have to fill out an application before you will be accepted to be able to register for the program because we are going to be doing more advanced level energetics and I need to make sure that everybody who comes is actually ready for the work. We will be doing a Kundalini awakening. We will be doing group visioning process called a spiritual canoe. We will be doing daily presence practices and working on expanding our energy. We will be doing daily rituals. This process will be related to specifically the people who are there because in addition to filling out the questionnaire about what your experience is, you're also gonna ask for what it is that you'd like to learn. So part of the curriculum for this is set and part of it will be designed around the desires of the participants. I only have 20 beds available for this retreat, so it will fill up quickly. So this is the time to register. Do not wait. To find out more, go to kellysparta.com forward slash retreat. I look forward to seeing you there. Another blood red sunset and yet another moon face and still another hundred miles to my next resting place. Driving down the road, eyes on the horizon, within my car I'm all Feeling good and feeling strong Knowing that this path I'm on brings me to myself I'm driving Hey now all, I'm Joey C. Welcome back to another episode of Spirit Sherpa. This is the show that helps and encourages you on your journey to unlock your magic mojo. With me as always is the spirit doctor, Kelly Sparta. Hey Kelly. Hey Joey. We're back for some more fun. We are. We are. And we have a guest with us this time. We do. And she is so interesting. Very cool. Why don't you introduce her? I'd love to. Deborah Diamond is with us today. And, you know, it's so funny. I keep running into people who are both spiritual and business people. It's like, you know, me having come out of real estate and Kathy having been the CPA and the head of a, of, of a Fortune 500 company. And now Deborah, who was a number one ranked money manager for many years. In fact, she was the president of a best performing investment fund on Wall Street. She was the first woman hedge fund manager and founder of seven investment partnerships. And she was actually recruited by George Soros to join his team of managers. And, and now she's a death doula and medium. You got to love it when we make the transition from business to woo woo, right? <laughs> she's, she's got this great new book out called Diary of a Death Doula. She's a psychic medium and a near death experience researcher she is presenting her the story of her life as a hospice death doula. And uh, in, in the book, she's revealing 25 critical life lessons from those at the threshold of the afterlife and those who have already crossed over. Ultimately, she's revealing a new way of understanding death. And you know me, I love talking cycle of life. So death is part of that process. So welcome, Deborah. I'm so excited that you can be on the show with us. Oh, well, thank you, Kelly and Joey. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Deborah, tell us, what's a death doula? 
So I think many people are familiar with the term birth doula. Mm-hmm. That's someone who who helps a woman give birth, you know, a midwife. Uh, they usher in life into the world. Um, a death doula bookends the process, so they help usher life out. Uh, people have sat in vigil bedside for thousands of years. There's nothing new about that sitting bedside with the dying. But the idea of a death doula who sits bedside as a service that's offered to people uh, is something new. It's probably only about five or 10 years old. And I really credit um, the baby boomers because, you know, whenever baby boomers get involved, they always seem to change things and, you know, look at what other options we have to make it better. And I think that, you know, many baby boomers are aging now. They're in their 60s and 70s and 80s. And, you know, they don't want the same old institutionalized process, you know, in terms of end of life and death. So death doulas have evolved in the last few years, and, and there are several types of death doulas. There are some who get involved with the process of a patient at end of life as soon as that patient enters the hospital or enters hospice. There are death doulas who get involved in legacy projects. There are death doulas who get involved with the families, supporting the families. There are a number of different types of death doulas, but my work as a death doula is sitting bedside with the actively dying. Now, the actively dying are defined as those in the last 24 to 48 hours of life. Now, when a physician tells you, you know, that your loved one has only 24 to 48 hours left, they don't always get it right. And it's not because they're lying to you. They just don't know. And I'll talk about this later if we can. The reason that they don't always know is because death is a process and it involves body and soul. It's not just the body. It's not just your soul. It involves both. And sometimes I think people feel like they visit a loved one in hospice and they say, why are they still here? You know, it seems like they should have gone already. They, you know, well, one of the reasons they're not ready yet. Their soul isn't ready yet. Their physical body may be ready, but their soul isn't. So we can talk about that more later, but that gives you a snapshot into the type of work that I do. The patients at end of life generally are unresponsive, but they're not unconscious. There's a lot going on that, you know, most people just don't see because it's taking place in the invisible world. But my work as a doula means that I'm sitting oftentimes for very long periods of time in quiet. I may be meditating. I may be reading. And my job is to be the eyes and ears of the medical staff and the families because the medical staff can't always be there in the room. And the families oftentimes aren't there, but they want someone to be with their loved one. They don't want their loved one to die alone, and they want someone to be with them. So that's really the job of the doula. I know you're a psychic and a medium. How does that play into your death doula work? For the most part, my work as a doula, as I mentioned, is to be the eyes and ears of the medical staff and to report if there are any changes taking place with the patient or if the patient's uncomfortable, if I feel they need something. Uh, Also to let the families know if, you know, they come in, they want to know, you know, is my loved one changed, you know, since I saw them yesterday, that sort of thing, update them. So first and foremost, that's the work. But because I am a medium, and let me just explain to your listeners in case they don't know the difference between a psychic and a medium, they are two different things. Psychics are able to retrieve information about money, relationships, career, family, life path, that sort of thing, all the things that affect all of us as we go through life. Mediums connect with those who've passed over. So they're two different things. All mediums are psychics, but not all psychics are mediums because mediums have to go higher than psychics, you know, to retrieve that information. So think of mediums and psychics as um, 
let's say you had a radio or television tower and you're in Virginia. So if you were a psychic, you'd be able to pick up channels, let's say, in North Carolina or Florida. If you were a medium, you'd be able to pick up the channel in California. You have that much more power. So it's the same thing with, you know, psychics and mediums. A psychic has not as much power as a medium. Medium has to go higher to make that connection. So as a medium, I'm able to see those who passed who are on the other side. And as a medium who happens to be a death doula, not all death doulas are mediums, but because I am, I'm able to see into that invisible world. Uh, on occasion, patients will also communicate with me telepathically. And I'm able to see for many of them while they're lying there in their hospital bed, and it appears as if not much is going on. It looks like nobody's home. There's actually quite a lot going on. They are usually journeying. They're out of their bodies and they're journeying, and they may be visiting memorable places from their past. They may be visiting their new home on the other side, and they, or they may be visiting with loved ones who passed. I mean, there could be any number of things that they're, that they're doing, but they're out of their bodies. My mother used to tell a story before she passed about my grandfather's passing, her father. When you said they're not ready to go, it triggered that for me because um, my mother used to tell the story that her father had had a heart attack and they decided on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve, because Christmas was such a big thing for him, that they wanted his last gift to be the gift of his corneas to a child who would get sight. Mm. And so they turned off the machines on Christmas Eve so that he could give that final gift. And she said, wow, I'm tearing up. I wasn't even there. Um, and she said that he waited four days to die. Mm-hmm. And he'd been on machines for a while, so that shouldn't have been the case, theoretically. But she was convinced that he didn't die for four days so that he wouldn't ruin Christmas for her. It's a not uncommon story. You know, your story has its particular aspects, you know, the holiday. But at end of life, patients are much more aware of time and space and holidays and events and you know, all of that, many people realize. Now, you know, they're usually, as I said, they're usually unresponsive. They're not wearing watches. They're not looking at the clock. Yet they seem to know if a celebration is coming up, if a particular life event is coming up, they know. Their hearing is also the last sense to go. This is what we're told. So if you're in the room of a dying patient and you're having this conversation about, you know, we think we'll turn the machine off and, you know, then grandpa will die and he can donate his corneas today, he hears you, right? (laughs) So that's something I think, you know, people need to be aware of. But you didn't ask about how I decided to become a death doula, but the answer plays into what we're talking about. And the thing is, my mother passed away many years ago, and when she was ill, we had hospice come to the house, and they were really wonderful, I think, as anybody who's had an experience with hospice will tell you. And at one point, one of the hospice professionals handed me a piece of paper and said, you might want to read this. And I kind of set it aside, but when I eventually picked it up and I read it, it said, if the soul is ready and the body isn't, you don't leave. And if the body's ready and the soul isn't, you don't leave. When the body's ready and the soul's ready, then you leave. 
And, you know, I read that and I reread it and it really had a profound effect on me, you know, because up until then, I'd never been around anybody who had died. My idea of death was something like out of the movies, you know, where a thunderbolt would come out of the sky and all the secrets of the universe would be revealed. You know, I imagined it would be something very dramatic. And it's not really like that. It's more like birth. It's a process. And, you know, after I read what this hospice professional had written, I thought about it. I thought about it for a long time because what they were saying was death is a process. It involves body and soul. And this is something that you see in hospice. I could think of one patient in particular who had been in hospice for a month and hadn't eaten for weeks and had, you know, was down to like 85 pounds. I was sitting in the room with this patient and the nurse came in and they said, so-and-so, you can leave now. You can go now. And the nurse went about her business. And then I was talking to the nurse and I, I kind of whispered, do you say that to all the patients? And she got very defensive and she said, well, this patient's um, family keeps telling them they could leave. You know, why is this patient still here? They've been ill and they should uh, have gone by now. The doctor came in a little while later, just kind of shook his head, looked at the patient. Why is this patient still here? And then the doctor and the nurse left. And the patient telepathically said to me, I'll go when I'm ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so the patient's mother and aunt were in the room in spirit because I could communicate with those who passed over. The mother said to me, this person always had their own mind. They're always just so independent. So you don't change, you know, at end of life. This is not the time to take a U-turn and become another person. You don't. This person evidently was quite independent-minded and was nobody was going to tell this person what to do. And it was the same at end of life. This patient's body looked like there was really not much left, but the soul was strong. You know, the will was strong and the soul was strong. So both have to be ready to move on in order for physical death to take place. Big shift from money manager to death doula. Well, you know, when my mother passed away, I was still a money manager. Probably like many people on the spiritual path, you know, when you look back on it, you can pinpoint moments that were sort of markers on your spiritual journey, right? So, you know, you could say, you know, I had my transition point in 2008, but if you go back farther, you could say, oh, let's see, in 2000, I became a vegetarian. In 2001, I started doing this, you know, so it's almost like you're in training and right. your life starts to change. It's incremental until, you know, the moment where you make the shift. But yes, I had been a money manager for many years on Wall Street. The thing is, when I was a money manager, I also had these abilities, gifts, I don't know what you want to call it, but I knew things. I would be able to pick up a prospectus or an annual report, and without reading it, I would know about the company, the management, the product, the industry, you know, if the stock would do well, I would know all that. Paul Sheely actually teaches people how to do that. He mm -hmm. calls it a download. Paul oh. Sheely. Okay. S-C-H-E-E-L-E. -E -E. Okay. He, he does that. That's that's fascinating that you're just automatically doing it, but he actually teaches that process. Well, there's a process called psychometry, which maybe you're familiar with, where mm -hmm. you pick up a physical object and you're able to do a reading on it and get information. So I'm sure that there's a certain amount of that involved. But I didn't know what it was, you know, at the time. And my boss, who was pretty open-minded, would say things like, you know, you have, Deborah, you have pretty good instincts. You have really good instincts. So I just kind of seized on that and thought, that's the answer, good instincts. And of course, in the investment business, like you were in real estate, nobody goes around talking about 
being psychic. I mean, I'm sure, you know, it's not a topic that comes up, right? right? So it never occurred to me it could be something else. I had that foundation already. It was kind of built into me. And it appeared in my work in the, you know, when I was in the investment business. It wasn't until 2008 that I attended a an intuition development class in New York because I thought, you know, I have pretty good intuition. It'd be fun to take a class. And I went up to New York for the weekend for this class. And uh, in the class, there were about 25 people, men and women. I didn't know any of them. And uh, we did a few exercises. It was Saturday morning. We did a few exercises. I was getting everything. As a matter of fact, the first exercise was psychometry, where you had a partner. And uh, I didn't know my partner. Some It was a woman. She handed me her ring. And as soon as I was holding it, I started to see the uh, Amazon. I've never been to the Amazon but I knew it was the Amazon. She said, what do you see? And I started to just hem and haw because it just sounded so ridiculous to me to say, I see the Amazon. I mean, here, here I'm sitting in this New York classroom with a woman I don't know, and I'm going to announce I see the Amazon. So I kind of hemmed and hawed, and she kept saying, well, but what about the ring? What do you see? So finally I said, well, I see South America. I figured that was a good hedge. <laughs> and you know, I didn't want to get like too far out. So she said, keep going. And I said, oh, well, I see Brazil. And she said, keep going. And I said, well, I see a hut in Brazil. And I see you working in a hut with this woman. And when we were all done, the teacher said, okay, now exchange the thing back and talk about what you found. So the person I was working with said to me, I'm going to Brazil in three months to work with a shaman. And it's just going to be the two of us. And we'll be in this little hut, you know, in Brazil. So I was like, wow, you know, how did I do that? I didn't even know how I did it. Things like that, you know, uh, were happening that morning. And then we took a break. And when we came back, the teacher said, now we're going to do a seance. I mean, it would be like you and Joey saying, Deborah, surprise. Now we're going to do a seance with you. you know, I, I hope you're not. But, no. Uh, okay. Okay. Maybe in the next time. I'm okay. Dead, right? we'll, we'll talk about it. Yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, when she said we're going to do a seance, I was like, uh, no, you know, because I, I looked at the uh, schedule for the day. I didn't see anything about a seance. This was supposed to be intuition development, you know, something very soft. So then I thought, well, you know, I don't really want to do this, but, you know, it's still Saturday morning and the class went through Sunday afternoon. Okay, we'll just do this one exercise. Nothing's going to happen. And then we'll go on to the next thing. So the teacher said, I'm going to put you all in a meditative state and then I'll take you out of it. And if you see anyone, you let me know. So... I thought, well, that doesn't pertain to me. I'm not going to see anyone. I meditated, and then I, you know, she brought us out of meditation, and she said, does anyone see anything? And I looked around the room, and everyone was looking at each other. And I raised my hand, and she said, yes, Deborah, what do you see? And I said, I see about 50 people. So these were people who had passed. I saw people who were family members of mine who had passed. I saw people who had passed who went with other students in the room. And then I just saw some random people, like I saw 42nd Street showgirls, like prancing through the center of the room. The teacher said, well, if you see someone in the corner of the room, chances are they go with someone in that corner. So I said, well, I do see a man in the corner and he had black hair, parted in the middle, big handlebar mustache. And as I described him, the woman sitting in the corner began to sob. And she said, I know who that is. That's my fiance. He died two years ago. So she said, if I show you pictures of him on my cell phone during the break, can you identify him? And I said, yes, because he was 
plain as day to me. So during the break, she came over. She flipped through, you know, pictures on her cell phone. I said, there, that that's him. She said, yes, that's my fiance. Now, she had wanted to hear from him for two years. She believed in all this stuff. Now, I come from Wall Street. I, I didn't even know what all this stuff was, but she believed in it. She had wanted to hear from him, and she had not. So she had been – she was very disappointed for two years. And here, you know, I bring him in in this exercise. So she hugs me, and she thanks me, and I come from Wall Street. There are no hugs on Wall Street. No thank you <laughs> You know, I realized that I had done something meaningful for someone, which is also sort of a foreign thing if you worked on Wall Street. I mean, how meaningful, you know, is that really? So I was very overwhelmed by all of it, but I recognized that this was something, you know, something had happened. I continued in the class the rest of the weekend and more things were happening because now I had sort of opened up this portal and uh, I didn't know that at the time. Sunday night, I drew. I drove back home and I called my youngest son. I have three sons, but my youngest one is very linear thinking, very logical thinker. So I called him and I explained to him what happened. And uh, he listened. And when I was all done, he said, well, that makes sense. We're just energy and the energy has to go somewhere. That explanation helped me because up until then, I didn't have a context to put any of this in. This gave me, this provided a context. We're energy. Right. So, and that's something that I've used in all my work since then. You know, it's something I can understand and it's something that kind of spans the science and the spirituality part. Now, you've done some research on near-death experiences, right? Yes. How does that fit into your work with the dying? Oh, well, so it's just uh, sort of a natural progression. I had been asked to read for a famous NDE or near-death experiencer in 2013 in Washington, D.C. This particular person had a near-death experience. They were struck by lightning, had an NDE, came back and has certain artistic gifts that they didn't have prior to their experience. I read for this person, and it was a very unusual reading because psychics see things in symbols. And the symbols that I was getting were, you know, from the cosmos and the universe. I mean, that's not typical. You know, when a client comes to me, I'm not usually shown the universe. So I came home that evening, and I uh, Googled near-death experience after effects because I was puzzled about why this person had these after effects, what they were supposed to do with them, what about other NDEers, what do they get, if anything, and what does it mean? So I Googled NDE after effects, and I found out there hadn't been any research done. So I decided, well, I guess I'll do the research. Um, now, it's not that far-fetched, because when I was in the investment business, I spent the first 10 years as a healthcare research analyst. So I already had that background. That led me to studying near-death experience after effects, because many people come back with, most people come back with some sort of after effect from an NDE, even if it's just a shift to becoming more spiritual. But there are also some more profound after effects. In that process of working with these cases, uh, I also did readings on all the people who'd had NDEs because there were questions about what happened to them that they couldn't answer in a questionnaire, you know, like who was a being of light that I met or why didn't I see the light? Or, you know, why didn't I have a life review? You can't answer that on a questionnaire. So we did readings. And in the readings, certain information came to light. One of the things that came to light is that people come back from these experiences with a shift in their energy. When they have an NDE, they go out into the universe or wherever they're going. And they're not there very long. But when they come back, they, they've changed. They, 
there's a fundamental shift in them. And it appears as if their consciousness is expanded. So it's almost like they go out into the universe and they get tanked up by, at the universal gas filling station. They're not the same. And so let's say that before an NDE, we're all, you know, 98% physical body and 2% consciousness. Then you have an NDE. Now you're going to be maybe 95% physical body and 5% consciousness. Your consciousness is enhanced, which is what makes it so difficult for NDEers when they come back. They're not used to this. They're not used to all of a sudden having psychic powers. They're not used to being able to get information from the person who's standing in line at the Walmart. I have to interrupt you because what you're describing is what I've got a ton of people right now who are all saying, I'm suddenly psychic and I don't know what to do. They're having these awakening experiences. Mm -hmm. What do you tell people when they have that experience? It takes up to seven years to adapt to, uh, we know this about NDE, seven years to adapt to after having an NDE. We don't know uh, numbers yet for spiritually transformative experiences. Some of your people may have had NDE. Some of them may have had a spiritually transformative experience. It's impossible to say without you have to. I'd have to do readings on them, honestly, yeah. but um, to see exactly like what happened and you know where they are and what kind of person they are because it's different for each person. There is no antidote. You know, I can't tell people to go out and drink this and they'll be fine because it doesn't work that way. No, you um, have to learn how to see things differently. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the biggest issue for all these people is that they walk with one foot on earth and one foot out in the universe. Yep. And while people say to me, you know, how do I have one of those NDE things? That's exactly what I need. You know, <laughs> and exactly. It's sort of like so be no, careful no, what you no, ask no, for. But yeah, you, you don't want one. You don't want one. And it just, you know, it creates other issues. But, you know, lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people are having these shifts right now. I just so many and people that you would never have expected to have. Absolutely. You know, all of a sudden your banker is coming to you and, you know, saying, can I tell you something? Because they always whisper because they're afraid somebody might might hear. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I get that a lot. (laughs) I'm here in Richmond, which is the heart of the uh, the Bible Belt. And I get a lot of people coming up to me and just saying, ah, I've got ghosts. I've got this. I've got that. I get that all the time because, you know, when you're the one out person in the world, they're like, ah. Yeah. (laughs) So I totally get it. So you, you have a book called Diary of a Death Doula. What is that about? Well, that book, which which came out a few months ago after my book on uh, near-death experiences, which is called Life After Near Death, Diary of a Death Doula is about my work sitting bedside at hospice with the actively dying. And it's called 25 Lessons Dying Teach Us About the Afterlife. And there are lessons in the book that range from very commonplace lessons like families of and loved ones of the dying need care too. I mean, that's not a particularly psychic lesson, right. but it's something that you know people need to recognize, all the way to uh, experiences that I've had sitting bedside with the dying where you know I've witnessed uh, patients being out of body or have had conversations with loved ones in spirit who are in the room. You know, really the most profound lesson is one that I alluded to about the near-death experiences because you asked about, you know, how does the near-death experience relate to this? So there's a shift in your consciousness, you know, when you have an NDE. Well, I think without having done that work on NDEs, I wouldn't have understood some of the work uh, that I've encountered as a death doula. 
sitting bedside with the dying, as I mentioned, they're out of body quite a lot. They're journeying. They're transitioning. That's part of the transition process. They are, go out of body, and then they come back into their body. And then they go out, and they come back. And that's a process that they do. And unlike NDEs, the NDEers go out of their body one time when they have their NDE, and then they come back, and then they tell you about it. With folks who are physically, terminally ill, they don't come back, at least not in that way. Uh, and they go through uh, the, the transitioning or journeying process that goes on for a while. So what does that mean? That means every time they're out of their body, they go to that proverbial universal consciousness gasoline station, and they get a fill up. And then they come back into their body. So what seems to happen is their consciousness is expanding through this whole process, even as their physical body is declining, right? Until the moment when they actually die, when their consciousness is at full bloom and their physical bodies, you know, no longer viable. So, I mean, to me, having done the work with NDEers and done the research, that was sort of a stepping stone to the next step, which is, you know, actual physical terminal death. I mean, it's nothing that I set out to do. I didn't think, hmm, you know, I've done work on near-death experiences. Now let me see how I can take this, you know, the, with patients who are actively dying. I wanted to be a death doula. Um, I knew that after my mother passed away. I think that's a very common thing. Many people who've experienced hospice then decide that they want to give back, that they somehow want want to get involved. I knew I could sit bedside with the dying because as a medium, I talked to people who were dead. So, I mean, right. you know, I, it's, it didn't scare me. That's how I got into it. You know, I knew I wanted to do the work. But once I started doing the work, I had to think about it. And I thought, wait a second, there's, this seems to be, you know, taking a page from the NDE side. You said that they go out and they visit and they come back. So it feels like what you were saying was that the consciousness has to bloom before they leave the body. How does that work in traumatic deaths where death comes very quickly, where, you know, people may cross over and be stuck as ghosts because they don't even realize they're dead. How does that play into the process? Yeah. Well, I mean, in hospice, we don't generally see those kinds of cases because hospice is for people who can come in six months prior to their death. It's, it's right. a different thing. So they are going through the whole process generally at hospice. For the traumatic deaths, it's a different process. I know a little bit about it because I read for people who've unfortunately lost loved ones, particularly with the opioid epidemic, you know, unfortunately, many young people traumatically and obviously people who've lost other loved ones through other trauma. So in those cases, from what I know and understand, people are uh, immediately out of their bodies and they feel no pain. That's always a question that I get, you know, from the loved ones, you know, were they in much pain? Well, no, generally they're out of their body instantly looking down on their bodies and wondering exactly what happened, but they're not in any pain. And generally someone from the other side who they're close to is there for them instantly, a grandparent, a aunt, uncle, father, mother, whoever. It's a different process. Many of them end up on the other side. And even if they didn't go through the same process as someone at hospice, they end up on the other side and they live there and they are good with it and they adapt. I mean, what you're describing about someone who's stuck, I honestly don't see that. It's uh, not something I encounter so much. And this is a good education for our listeners because different people are tuned into different things, right? Right, so right, right. I don't do hospice work, and so therefore I don't see what you're seeing. Right. But I run into a lot of ghosts that go, 
I don't understand why nobody will talk to me. And then I'm like, well, you do realize you're dead. And they're like, no, but that would explain so much. Right. And yeah. so yeah, yeah. it's that moment, but I've, I've run into many, many, many of those people, but this, what we're attuned to, right. Is that what, what we're used to practicing with. And so just because two people say that they do mediumship or two people say that they're psychics, it doesn't mean that they get the same information. So that's oh, a for good sure. lesson. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I was actually at a, uh, in a group uh, a couple of weeks ago where they were talking about what do you do when someone comes to you and says, this psychic told me so-and-so, and what do you think about that? Well, it's sort of like trying to get into someone's dream, right? You know, right. you can't. You can't. Right. That's, that's, you know, their consciousness and whatever's flowing through their consciousness. I can't just jump into it. That's the information that they're getting. So it's the same. You know, we all get different. We're all different. We all get different information. Although, you well, know, we all carry different energies. I tell people right. I don't do future reads because I carry the energy of change. The moment I tell you what's going to happen in the future, it changes it. It's, it's a moving target. Well, yeah. I, you know, and what you said about people who sort of jump in and say, help me. I think about a nurse who was in one of my classes years ago. She worked in the emergency room and she would talk about how she would get in her car in the morning. Her car is parked in the garage. She'd turn her car on and this person would jump in front of her car and say, help me. And it would be somebody who had died the day before in the emergency room. And she'd say, I can't help you. I have to go to work. So, I mean, it does happen. It's not part of my practice. It's just not how, you know, it's the same as what you're discussing. It's not how yeah. I generally work. That's exactly a great place for us to end because it's great for people to know what they do do and what they don't do so that you know exactly where to go for what you need. And this has been such an interesting conversation, Deborah. I really want to want to thank you for coming on the uh, the podcast. I feel like we just scraped the, t- scraped the very edge of the top of the iceberg. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I really want to thank you for sharing this information and um you know i recommend to the listeners that if you're interested you can check out her books but where can they find you online if they want to want to reach out and learn more about you sure yeah absolutely so and thank you kelly my website is deborahdiamondpsychic.com d-e-b-r-a diamond like a diamond ring psychic.com there's a contact page on my website so you could reach out to me for readings consultations and both of the books are available uh, on Amazon and at many booksellers and uh, IndieBound.com and BarnesandNoble.com. I'm going to invite you to become part of our Spirit Sherpa After Party group on Facebook where we invite our guests to come. Thank you so much for coming. This has been fantastic. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. This has really been eye-opening. Thank you, Deb. Yeah, my pleasure. All right. Well, that is all that we have time for this week, but be sure to join us next time as Kelly adds another chapter into your guide to energy, magic, and the spirit world. I'm Joey C. here with Kelly Sparta and Deborah Diamond, and you have been listening to Spirit Chirpa. So long, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. I travel over 13,000 now, so I'll leave behind a Spirit Trippa is the sole property of Kelly Sparta Enterprises and is distributed under Creative Commons BY-NC-ND 4.0 license. For more information about this licensing, please go to creativecommons.org. Any request for deviations to this licensing should be sent to K-E-L-L-E at K-E-L-L-E-S-P-A-R-T-A dot com. That's Kelly at KellySparta.com. To sign up or to get more information on the programs, offerings, and services referenced in this episode, please go to KellySparta.com. This episode of Spirit Trippa has been produced by Honu Voice Production. Home and my love and my life and me.
Are you waking up to the spiritual world and realizing that you have no idea what you're doing, but you feel like you kind of probably should, especially since you seem to be seeing things and feeling things and having things see you that maybe aren't so great and that you might want to actually control your experience of that. Well, I have great news for you because our Welcome to the Woo program does just that for you. It teaches you how to hold your energy field, manage your energy field, clear your energy field, protect your energy field, and learn how to protect your space. And you learn how to do basic divination and talk to your guides so that you feel like you actually have a clue and have a way to talk to the guides that will help you to figure everything else out. And it teaches you how to make sure that you feel mentally, emotionally, and energetically safe. That means that we also deal with things like fear and anxiety and worry and dread and self-doubt and inner and outer judgments. And we help you build a foundation of self-support and courage. All of these things together create a solid sense of safety in your own life. They will reduce your stress levels in half, guaranteed. So visit the website at kellysparta.com and find out more about the Welcome to the Woo program. Your future awaits.